You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to M Squared TechCast, a live internet radio show offering the latest news and interviews with the people driving business, technology, and politics in Michigan. Now, your hosts, Matt Rausch and Mike Brennan. Hey, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And we're back with another fun-filled episode of the M Squared TechCast. We did take last Monday off for Labor Day, but now we're back laboring. So we've got a good show for you today, a lot of interesting guests, and we're going to kick things off with uh, Carrie Ebersole. Um, Carrie, why don't you give folks your title and affiliation and uh, you know, what role you fill? Sure. I'm the director of the 60 by 30 office um, for labor and economic opportunity with the state of Michigan. And I got, okay. I have, this is my second week on the job, so we're going to have Whoa. a lot of fun during this discussion. So Okay. So let's actually uh, let's start off with that. I was I just I was reading your notes here uh, just before we came on air, and I was not familiar with the sixty for thirty program. That's a good place to start. Why don't we start there? Sure. Um, So this is something the governor set forth in our first day of the state address, and that is to uh, seek attainment, an educational attainment goal of sixty percent of our working population by the year twenty thirty. And there's a lot of reasons why that goal is important, um, one of which is uh, individuals' prosperity, our state's economic competitiveness, all are attached to our education attainment. So it's a really critical piece for our economy and the health of our state, and, um, and that's what we're going to work on. And the current stats are, I'll let you explain it. Uh, we, we're not at the, what you're going for is 60% of the state's population having a post high school degree or technical degree or something along those lines. Where are we on that spectrum now? We're about at 48%. Okay. So we got to make up 12% uh, over the next several years. And I got to tell you, there's some really interesting statistics out there. When you look at other states, um, remarkably states in the South, um, that have started to surpass us because they have a number of important programs like the reconnect program, which you may have also heard us talk about from the state of Michigan, as well as the futures for frontliners work that was announced just last week. Well, we can't have them rebs passing us on anything now, can we? So (laughs) I gotta say the, you know, the bluegrass state is a beautiful state, but um, I'm a competitive girl and I want to make sure my home state is at the cutting edge. And uh, uh, that's what we're going to do. And obviously we're not just talking traditional four-year college degrees either, right? That's, a, uh, I think, a little bit less than 30% of the people in Michigan possess those. Yes, exactly. This is about high school diploma um, completion. That is about um, associate's degrees and bachelor's as well, as well as apprenticeships and um, certificate programs. So it's wide ranging because we have in-demand jobs, as you all know, across the state that vary a little bit by region, but we want to prepare our workforce for those positions. 
Okay, and let's kind of get into the uh, uh, the program, which is futures uh, futures for frontliners. Uh, make sure I said that right. Uh, and it, it was announced, I believe, on Thursday. But why don't you go into some details on that? Sure. And and this really the premise of this all is um, not only some of the pieces we've already talked about, but the reality of what our state has gone through since we've been facing uh, the pandemic and. That is, we've had a number of folks that have worked to keep hospitals running, manufacturing, um, and delivering ventilators and masks, keeping the electricity flowing and beyond. And this is a simple way to not only say thank you for all that work in the front lines, but also to offer a pathway um, towards an uh, educational journey and improving their skills and, and preparing for uh, the next job. So, um, again, this is something that we're going to provide uh, free tuition uh, to those that are Michigan residents that worked 11 of 13 weeks from April through June um, and we're required to go outside of the home. That's what we're deeming as essential workers. That's who is eligible to apply for this program and enroll as soon as January of 2021. And it's not open to people who already have a post, like associate's degrees or bachelor's degrees. You know, these are people that have no beyond high school degrees, right? Correct. Or, or no high school diploma completion. So they are also eligible to this. Okay. And, and where can they use these uh, tuition credits? Uh, Michigan Community Colleges around the state. Um, we want them to first and foremost for their local community college uh, to look like to look at programs there. Uh, but does not preclude them from going out of district to another community college if they so deem. I think what Matt was also driving at is uh, he does, he's the news director for Lawrence Tech. And, and so like a four-year school like Lawrence Tech, would they be eligible or people be eligible to attend there? Or not? Right now we're focused on those community colleges. They are okay. partnered. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, we've got articulation agreements with just about all of them. So if people want to start there, that's fine with us. Yeah. So. Yeah. This is really developing the pipeline, right? And And I think our focus is not only, you know, especially with folks that have yet to achieve their high school diploma, we want to support them, you know, through that end, but then also forward and seeking additional um, skills and training or the um, associate's degree at their local community college. Now, are there any particular fields of study that you're uh, that you're emphasizing here or is this just open to whatever anyone might want to take? Well, this is this is open, but we want to make sure folks are informed about the in-demand jobs on the end of this. Okay, we there are a number of jobs every year that go unfilled and we want to make sure that this is working for our business community as well, um, that they are getting the skilled workforce they need to be successful. So um, we are we've been working with our Michigan Works offices um, across the state to, you know, gain what it, within their regions are in-demand jobs. I can tell you from across the state, you know, it ranges from auto, automotive service excellence certification to HAVAC certification um, and nursing and other um, health uh, professionals. So it's pretty wide spanning, um, but we want to make sure that this is a pathway, not just a start and end, 
but there's a continuation piece and we want to really connect the opportunities back to the skills and training that those those folks need. Well, even in the technology space, uh, I'm in Ann Arbor, of course, this is a big four-year school here, but a lot of those folks... I won't that hold that there, against you. I'm a Spartan. Okay. All right. uh, well, well, the governor is... So, but we let her, we give her a pass so, on that. So, so, so is my daughter. She converted me. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, here, when you get a computer science degree, it's a four-year degree. And often what happens by the time you get to graduate, what you learned in your freshman year is almost obsolete. So I know there's a lot of uh, really good technical programs out there where six months or a year, and you can be up and running and, and making pretty good money and, and filling these jobs that are in desperate need right now, right? Absolutely. And we have another skills to work um, online uh, portal, really, that can help connect you to up, upgrade or upskill um, some of those items. So I would encourage anyone to go to the LEO website, michigan.gov backslash LEO, um, to learn more about the, the skills to work uh, program. All right. Um, so... Basically, um, there's also a skilled trade shortage, right? Are you going to uh, address that with this program yes. as well? Yeah, uh, a number of those certificates will also um, be, you know, we'll be providing support to obtain those certificates. Again, this is about preparing our workforce and for jobs that are on the other side of that. So, you know, one of our biggest um, biggest goals right now is to ensure that we have the right um, coalition that's built. That's our business community. We need them at the table. We need to make sure that we are developing the talent they need to be successful. Two is our educational community and making this a spectrum of uh, developing workers and long-term educational attainment, as well as government. There is a role for government, obviously, and that is not only from our elected leaders seeing leadership, not only at the state level, but in our local areas around the state and ensuring that we're gearing all that we can from a state perspective to help support this. And that's where you get um, a number of the programs, Futures for Frontliners being the most recent. We are uh, within a budget process here in the legislature on the ReConnect program. Program that would be universal, uh, free community college to anyone over the age of 25. Um, my opportunity that gets to those kids just graduating high school to get access to the community college. But again, this isn't just about the community college. We want to support attainment into further into post-secondary for those four-year degrees uh, as well. So it's it's really an exciting time, and um, it's an all-hands-on-deck piece because this is about our economic competitiveness. Uh, we just can't have that bluegrass state, uh, you know, edging us out in any rankings whatsoever. So is this modeled after what they're doing in Kentucky? I mean, is there a white best practice kind of thing that you're looking at out there that you model it after? You're exactly right, Michael, because we have Kentucky and Tennessee. They are two of the states that are really uh, cutting edge. They're picking up. Uh, pace on us. T- Tennessee's now nipping on our toes as well as it, as it looks at post-secondary attainment. We've taken a look at what they've done and why they are increasing their rates so significantly, and it's essentially these programs. And that's why we get them. We got to get them up. We got to get them funded, up and running. And luckily, the futures for frontliners are federal dollars. We've been able to access through the CARES Act and mobilize them to help support our workforce. 
So how much money is available through the CARES Act for this program? I believe it's 23 or 24 million. Um, okay. And again, yes. That, and that'll go a long way at the community college level because the tuition is pretty reasonable. It should. It should. And uh, the only thing is we are in a bit of a time crunch because we need folks uh, to apply uh, by December 31st. So that's the other piece. There's a timeline piece. And folks have to, um, eligible folks need to apply with the Department of Treasury here at the state of Michigan um, for this tuition-free support. And then also they have to be accepted by their community college and Mm. enroll. They have to enroll in 2021 So to secure those funds. That's a lot of hurdles to jump over in three and a half months. Don't you worry. We're going to have some navigators and uh, community outreach to make sure that these applicants uh, have the information they need to go to the next step. All right. We're into our last minute on this segment. So I want you to give all that contact information one more time. Where do people start the process? So, yes, you can go to michigan.gov backslash frontliners. All the information you need for the Futures for Frontliners uh, program can be found there, as well as a link to where you apply. And that should be a one-stop access point for you to get additional background and frequently asked questions as well if there's anything we didn't cover here today. Okay, take us out, Matt. All right, thanks very much. Carrie Ebersol with the State of Michigan talking about the 60 by 30 program. And Futures for Frontliners. You just heard the uh, contact information, and I'm sure Mike will post that at mitechnews.tv. Right, Mike? Indeed. Okay. Well, we'll be back in just a minute with another segment of the M Squared TechCast. For right now, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And you're watching at Podcast Detroit, mitechnews.tv, and all over the place, wherever a fine podcast can be found. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Hey, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan, and we're back. We're waiting for Fred Brown, our infectious disease expert, to join us. But in the meantime, we can talk a little bit about LTU. I know you had RoboFest over the weekend. How'd that go, Matt? Well, we are having RoboFest virtually online this year. It is the only robotics competition in the world this year during this uh, pandemic because um, 
the other competitions sort of depend on in-person um, competitions and we can do ours online. We uh, just make sure that everybody follows the rules of the various events and the games. And we've got um, basically thousands of teams um, all over the world started this thing. And now it's down to hundreds of teams. And there's a different uh, competition being held every weekend through early October. And that's when we're going to announce the winners in all of the separate competitions. Um, we've got, um, you know, RoboFest is a little bit different than FIRST Robotics and other robotics competitions and is that the robots are small. They're, you know, roughly like that big, they're a loaf of bread. And um, they cost about $400. So the cost of entry in, uh, in RoboFest is quite modest. Um, it's only a $50 registration fee for a team. And the robots are all controlled entirely by software. There is no human operator with a joystick. And that's how robots operate in the real world. Um, you know, manufacturing robots don't have a guy with a joystick there. They operate on software. So the kids learn software and they learn robotics with uh, real world application skills. Also, um, the robots in, involved in FIRST Robotics, uh, the, the, the players don't know some of the challenges that they will be uh, facing until competition day. Um, and then they have two hours to program their robots to accomplish that particular task with no adult assistance at all. So you, you have junior high kids that are learning uh, very sophisticated computer code to make their robot uh, accomplish a certain task. They have to like move a ball from one place to another, or move a block from one place to another, or hit a ball or something like that. There are all sorts of sort of unknown factors that aren't revealed until competition. That's, that's for some of the competitions in robots. What's also unique about RoboFest is that there's also an open exhibition category. Um, participants can design a robot. Well, they can dream up a task that a robot could do, something like uh, checking patients in a hospital or watering a garden, fertilizing a garden. And then they design a robot that's able to do that. They design it and they program it and they set it to doing that in a demonstration area of RoboFest. So <clears throat> the judges for RoboFest are mostly computer science professionals from around the state of Michigan. And there's Fred Brown. So I'm going to wrap up this part right here and tell people if they want more information about RoboFest to go to robofest.net. Okay. Well, I actually have five segments here today, four segments, but because now we have Fred joining us uh, from uh, his, his, his house in Ann Arbor, stone's throw from where I live. So, uh, I know uh, we uh, we took a week off last week, so we need to do a little catch up. So we have you until at two forty five. So let's talk. What do you want? What's top of mind for you, Fred? Top of mind for me. How how does models sound? I, I was going to talk to you a little about what the models are saying to us these days. If you're interested, huh. would you like to okay. take a look? Yes. Okay. So let me see if I can find some things that might be of interest here. And here we are. So, this um, so on on March on March twenty third, I, I I I wrote an article, uh, and I estimated how many people uh, were going to die as a result of COVID by September first in the United States, and um, my estimate at the time was 145 to 180,000 people. And uh, as you it's know, scary. yeah, <laughs> on September 1st, we actually had 184,800 or so. Pretty good model. So I think, I think the models are, are reasonably accurate, and, and some people were slightly better. 
some were worse, but uh, you know, the point is, I guess that, you know, we really can model some of this stuff based on, uh, based on what we know about the virus and about what we know about our behaviors. And um, so I projected that, that, that model. And I also attached that to unemployment and economic models. And I, I guessed that on this is on March 23rd that, um, and then I, 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 uh, I, I gave a presentation on April 5th to, to you the first time uh, and talked a little about this. And I guess that our, 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 our unemployment profit is going to be 26%. And the actual number, and that was based on new six uh, numbers, the actual joblessness hit 22.5, a little bit more. So, you know, reasonably close there as well. I thought the required stimulus is going to be 4.2 trillion and 1.2, uh, and I'm sorry, one, $1 trillion in federal reserve. The actual, um, uh, was about 3.7 trillion with, uh, and people, I, I think that if Congress had a chance, they'd certainly give us the extra half a billion. Um, uh, I'm sorry, 500, 500 billion, uh, and bring us up to the 4.2 that I'd estimated. The fed really out, outdid itself and and did extremely well and and actually put three trillion dollars into the market space so that 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 was a lot of something I, I underestimated significantly i just didn't think they could act that fast based on what they'd done with the tarp pro program and then i thought that the total net economic damage was going to be about 2.5 trillion contraction in gdp the actual number was 2.45 so you know we, not not too bad um and uh, i wanted to show you based on those models um what i'm coming up with now if that would if that's helpful Yes, because uh, I think um, people might be surprised. <laughs> Basically, if you look overall, you know, uh, at what we're, uh, what's what's happening at the globe, we uh, aren't aren't doing very well. You know, basically, it's been a steady rise in cases around the globe, and that's because this is nature, and it's just rel- relentless. I mean, it will keep going and going and going unless you're really very focused on particular strategies. Um, you're going to have problems because nature's everywhere. And unless you focus on and, and try to knock stuff down, you're going to have problems. So um, this is so in the United States, that was our biggest problem. We don't really have a, a single strategy. We've got a number of different strategies. Some are kind of a little bit more laissez-faire uh, and others are very controlled. So in the laissez-faire uh, area, those are sort of the brutal bets. Uh, it's Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, South Dakota, uh, Iowa. Uh, so uh, you can see those are you know, positioned right up against some of the states that are really trying to control this carefully. And so the problem is we have so much transit between these states that, you know, some are trying to really control very carefully uh, and others are letting the economy open uh, 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 completely. The result of that uh, is that really we cancel each other out. <laughs> so we're fighting nature against really no single strategy. I mean, we're a big place, but the truth is that uh, collectively we all have to have a strategy. Otherwise we can't really focus our resources. And so that's, um, you know, we, we can't make decisions quickly. We get all confused about the messaging, lots of communication. They're going all over the place. Every time I go to a new, new government, they're, they're starting to learn something. I have to take them up the same learning curve. They don't understand what I'm talking about when I say, what's your positive taste rate, things like that. And so, and of course, our scale of operations is really tiny compared to how big we are uh, in terms of how much we're doing testing and contact tracing and so on compared to where other countries are on a per capita basis. So, and whenever you talk to people, there are always millions of different, of different measurements and people can't really tell how, how we're going up against that. So the result of that is that, you know, sadly, we don't really have a strategy. We've got 50 separate strategies and many of them are counteracting each other. So um, 
you know, when you think about the different strategies we've got, like I talked a little bit about the, 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 the laissez-faire kind of model and the quite controlled model. And if you think about it through our history, humans have done that, right? So humans have said, you know, either it's every person for himself and here's the hunter-gatherers going out and looking for their meat. And uh, they, they delegate all the decisions to the individual level. Uh, there's not, it's difficult to prioritize. You don't really know where you're going to go hunting. It's difficult to leverage decisions and investments. Uh, and you have to reinvent all the time. You're constantly, you're not really sure how to kill the mastodon. And you don't really have much scale. Uh, uh, so the other, uh, and there we've seen that countries that are trying to go at, go like that at this, at this virus, basically what's happening is you're just going up a steady curve not really controlling it well. Then there's sort of the agrarian model where everyone gets together, they pitch in, they decide on a strategy, they combat, they combat and kind of control in a, in a micro area what's going on with nature. And you're able to prioritize resources and activity. You've got mutually supportive systems. Everyone's learning best practices. You're getting scaled operations. And you can see that there, the pattern is much more you, you know, you get hit once and then you slowly learn and you, and you, and you collectivize and, and you really try to keep the thing down. Now, if you think about those two things, that's one way we have fighting nature. Then the other way we fight nature and, and try to, you know, control and, and live with nature is we respond to, to huge catastrophes, right? And there are kind of two ways to respond to catastrophes. One way is the way we respond to like hurricanes and fires, right? It happens in a day. Or so, hopefully, California is anything a little more than a day. But, you know, it's a day or so. You've put the thing out or the, the weather goes by. And then you have a big response. And you're, you know, in a, in, a, in a month or two, you're back to normal. Maybe even a week or two, you're back to normal. So that's sort of whack-a-mole. You know, you go around and try to respond very quickly to these big outbreaks. Whereas if you've got long-term uh, kinds of, kinds of uh, remediation that you have to do, then basically what you want to do is, at each event, you want to get a little bit smarter and work your way down. So let's take a look at how these two things combine uh, for ourselves. So in the United States, basically, we had this kind of slow upward trajectory of the uh, of, of what, we, what you'd expect with the uh, with the hunter gatherer approach, punctuated by you know big outbreaks in New York, New Jersey, Florida, and Texas. Whereas you know China and, and Europe, they had a big outbreak. They controlled it, and they slowly are pushing the thing down. Now it's going to come back again, you know, every once in a while. But there's a different kind of philosophy and approach that these countries are taking uh, versus the United States. So if you combine those two, just take a look at the at, at that at that upper at the upper at the upper model. Here is what, and then so here's what you com- what happens when you combine the two, right? You get that line. So just keep your eye on that upper model, and here's what actually happened with cases in the United States. Interesting, mm-hmm. that red line is what happened with the United States, right? So when we model this, it's difficult to model if you're looking at those little humps. You say, how are you going to model a hump? You know, that's very difficult. Well, what you, so what you do is you actually model the real growth that's happening underneath, and then you predict based on policy and behavior and trends what groups of states in the United States are going to have an outbreak. And that's the way we're starting to model now. And when you do that, what happens is that you get distracted. You know, a lot of the countries are distracted by, oh, we had a peak and then we're going down. Oh, we're going down looking good. Then we have another peak and we're going back down again. And these peaks are actually kind of, for our, us modelers, are a little bit um, 
are, are, are a little bit of a, of a of a distraction. What's really happening is this real growth line in black underneath uh, at, at all. And the result of not really focusing on that real growth line means we're going to, we could have trouble because we talked about ex- exponential growth. And, you know, things go slow, 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 like that, like that black line is doing. And all of a sudden, once they hit a certain level, they start to exponentially grow. So mm-hmm. here's what's happening with deaths. And you can see the same thing. We had a peak and then came down, and a peak and then came down. But notice that each time we come down, um, when we go to the bottom, we were, we were, we were kind of down at 240 deaths a, a day at our absolute minimum, averaging around 500 on the, on the seven-day average. Today, we're, we're down. We're at about 800. The problem is that, the, that those are your bottoms, right? And so each time you hit a bottom uh, of the plateau, you're jumping back up again. And each time you come back to the and you have to run down another outbreak, you're starting at a higher level. So each time we start at a higher and higher and higher level, so that gives you a chance for outbreak. So here is what the projections could be, right? They could just flatten out at around 1,000 cases a day for the rest of the year. They could decline to the same level they did before at 500 a day, right? That's sort of this other, you look at where we were in June, July, that's sort of the, the end of the decline. Or we could be like Europe and China, and maybe the whole thing will just die out in October. So if you had to guess among, you know, if you had to guess, what do you think? Which one do you think you guys like better? I wouldn't say like, but I'm thinking in the top line of a 1,000 a day is probably realistic considering what's going on right now. That's right. We're, 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 at, a, uh, we're at sort of a, uh, a pretty steady state. Unfortunately, when you do the models, it looks like this. Oops. Oh. And the reason for that is because remember that big black line I was talking about that's underneath this whole thing? It's really just driving the, the true uh, the, the, the true COVID growth. That line keeps going, and it hits exponential growth starting around the middle of October. So we're going to see sort of steady state September, steady state October, uh, and, and then and, and little peaks and valleys based on school starting and, 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 and Labor Day. But the big hit. It's going to start happening October, late October, early November, and by Thanksgiving, it will really be out. It'll be really be off. You'll really feel the difference. So, so I'm curious, what's what's driving that? Why is it going to be so much worse? Is it just that we're all going to go back inside to enclosed spaces? Or that is a great question, and there are seven things that I think are going to drive it. <laughs> well, that was like we said, that was, that was not scripted. Let me assure you. That's... <laughs> Uh, the seven things are that we really don't have any underlying viral control, sadly. You know, that, that black line that's keep going up, like the rest of the world keeps going up. And now we're, we know when that exponential growth is going to start to hit. And so because we're not really in control, we're at start to hit November. Uh, second thing, of course, we move inside. Uh, as you pointed out, people aren't so in the south when people moved in, in, inside due to air conditioning and heat. The same thing can happen to us up here where... We're going to move inside as a result of cold. And uh, we're going to have the holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas, lots of travel, lots of people. Oh. And so oh, it's sort oh, of a perfect storm. New Year's Eve, all that stuff. Exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it already. Uh, and, of course, yeah, there's another big issue. I don't. I mean, I don't go out on New Year's Eve anyway because it's amateur night. So it's <laughs> now I've really anyway. got to you know? I mean, geez. Yeah, this 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 really you don't don't want to go to Times Square and celebrate with a lot of New Yorkers. That probably isn't the right thing. Who are especially people who are flying in from all over the world. You know, they don't want to do that. That's that's not a good that's not a good outcome. Uh, 
uh, although it's outside, so maybe it's going to, you know, don't, don't go inside anything. Uh, um, the, the politics are also challenging. You know, uh, if, if, if Trump leads the election, and, you know, I've modeled this as well, I think it's going to be an extremely close election. It doesn't really matter, you know, who wins uh, that, that much. Because during this period, what's going to happen kind of November through December is, you know, Donald Trump would legitimately say, hey, I've got a mandate, so, you know, we're going to continue to open and things are going to be that way. Or if Biden uh, wins, then it'll be a lame duck and everyone say, we better wait till you know, the new president comes on. So whatever happens during this huge period of, of exponential growth, chances are we're not going to be doing much about it. Um, of course, we have the flu season uh, that's going to be taking off at the same time. And the problem with the flu season, it puts a lot of people in the hospital and it's about 200,000 a year. Uh, I'm sorry, a month. So you have 200,000 extra flu uh, people hitting the uh, flu, flu uh, victims hitting the, 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 the hospitals. And as I said, the big, big change in death occurs when you have over, overload and when the hospitals start to have backup the ambulances and you've got to you know, have freezer trucks and so on. That's, that's, not, a, that's not a good sign. Uh, and uh, that that's going to happen likely, you know, November, December. I mean, in the freezer truck side, uh, we uh, <laughs> we continue. We're going to be continued rationing of of the PPE and and testing. We don't see enough of that coming out uh, in the next few months. Unfortunately, everyone's getting excited about the vaccine, and unfortunately, no one will get. There'll be very few people actually vaccinated with the vaccine until probably the middle of next year. Even if we get it out, you know, Novemberish, uh, we still have to scale it up. Uh, and I am working with one of the companies who's doing the scale up, and you know it's challenging. We got we got a long way to go, uh, and so that's what's going. What, what I what and and I actually my my numbers are slightly more optimistic than most. Most people really? are in around around four, a little over four hundred thousand deaths uh, by December thirty first, and I'm at a little over three hundred thousand deaths. And you know my my range is between two sixty five and 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 about four hundred. That's like the total deaths for the American forces in World War II is four hundred thousand. So, and some people are getting yeah, yeah, and you know some people are getting up to seven thousand deaths a day. That 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 is a battle of Gettysburg every day. I'm not yeah. I'm not there yet, but you know, I they could be right. And I, I'm they're certainly within margin of error of uh, confidence interval this far out in December. Without without getting too political, uh, yeah, if uh, we had. <laughs> I'm not, uh, as you know. If we had done more of the European lockdown and everybody wearing masks, you know, kind of instead of having 50 responses, had one federal response, how much do you think this would have changed? Well, it, it turns out that the big issue isn't isn't so much. Um, um, uh, well, eventually it became how many how, how much we actually uh, did uh, did the control. If we if we were at the European level of control, we would save 100,000 lives between now and December, according to that. Hmm. Now, the the big issue with the death rate, unfortunately, what wasn't the the strategy? It was actually um, how fast we reacted. If we'd reacted just a little bit faster, we would have nipped the the, the virus a little bit more in the bud. Uh, But unfortunately, in that period in February, when we really should have been testing a lot more, uh, we had some uh, we had some issues with the CDC, who was trying to put out its own test, did not rejected the WHO test. Uh, and then turned out the test was contaminated. So we lost a whole month of contamination. And we had to rely on what they call the ILI database. The ILI database is the influenza-like uh, illnesses. And uh, CDC was adamant about the fact that, you know, this, this is a flu-like uh, virus, and, and we don't, we don't, we're not detecting any uh, spread of flu-like, uh, flu-like diseases. 
unfortunately, it doesn't spread like the flu. It spreads a super spread. There's a whole bunch of differences between the flu and the COVID. And so they tremendously underestimated how bad the, the situation was. And so, um, you know, uh, when you look at the whole, the whole thing, um, you know, right now it's coming out that President Trump knew quite a bit on February 7th. The truth is that a lot of his experts were, were, were saying, you know, it's not spreading like you think. It's, it's probably going to be okay. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I give him a little bit of, of a break versus what, what you're hearing a lot on the news. Because uh, I, I was part of that. I was really upset about, about this. And that's when I started really working on this is, is February 15th. On February 7th, they, they announced we're going to have the te- CDC announced we're going to have the test available February 15th. There was no there was no test being sent out and, and everybody was kind of panicking wondering what was going on. And the CDC became very quiet and then claimed that we weren't having the spread we were, we, that we thought we were. And um, that that was incorrect. That was just that. that and that really, I think you know, when 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 we look back on this, uh, that's going to be a huge factor. Um, um, uh, not not so much. Uh, it was, yes, now it is that we're not responding as well with behavioral changes we need to with uh, with with uh, with non-pharmaceutical intervention. But back at that time, when we really had a chance to kill it early. We had the wrong information, and that was disappointing. So that's uh, so basically the forecast on the biological side is it's going to be not such a great winter, and and you know so so do the stuff you want to do now when it's nice out. You can do things outside. Because uh, if you wait till November, you're going to be, you know, you, you, there's a good chance you'll be out of luck. <laughs> so, right. you, you, we have a lot of, uh, there's going to be a lot of really soul searching because with Thanksgiving, Christmas, not so much New Year's because, you know, Matt won't be out, so we'll be okay. But I mean, uh, for Thanksgiving and Christmas, people want to get the family together. And uh, yeah. can that be done? No. <laughs> <laughs> Do not do not schedule big family events. Do not have a big Christmas plan. Do not fly anywhere around. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend. Sadly, you know, just based on the models, I I would not recommend it. You can do that, but you're taking you're, you'll be traveling around uh, in a period of of, of heightened of, of heightened risk. And so, just think about your own personal situation. If you're if you've got diabetes, you know, are are are, are overweight, have a heart condition. Um, um, uh, and all all the other pre, you know have, have cancer and, and and are immunocompromised anyway. Uh, that plus this activity plus the fact that you're 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 actually in a very active virus environment. All three of those things coming together is going to be extremely deadly. Now you could you know it'll ruin my model, but please, I'd much rather have my model be wrong <laughs> and people you know the, the number of deaths down. Uh, then I'm right, uh, but because it's, it's natural for us all to get together, right? And Thanksgiving, I mean, I, my wife and I have you know, 30, 40 people coming from all over the world to visit on Thanksgiving. We love it. And uh, this year, yeah, quite- I was at your Christmas party last That's year. That's right. That's right. You were right. So you know, I, we love getting together. <sighs> so uh, yeah, it's disappointing. Probably no Christmas party either. I hope I'm wrong. I hope it's more like you know the, that 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 downward trend on a, ending on October 15th. But I sadly the the models are just telling us something completely different. As I, and as, as I said, I'm, you know, this time I'm actually relatively positive compared to most. Back in March, I was very negative compared to most. I mean, people were laughing me out of their office saying, that's never going to happen. We're never going to have 180,000 people dead by September. We're never going to have, you know, 26% reduction in the GDP. That, uh, you know, disappointingly, I was correct. So, 
Um, the good news is that if you where where we are MPI compliant or non-pharmaceutical intervention compliant, those are the masks, those are the you know all, all the things that hand washing um, and and distancing. Where where, where we're doing that, uh, we do see a good reduction in the rate of transmission. So that's that's the good news. So there, you know, we can we have some control over this, um, but uh, there's going to be a lot of push toward moving the contagion up up in our, our neck of the woods, especially. I, I I have to ask you what you think about uh, sports programs starting up again, like college football and high school sports here in Michigan. What what do you think? They'll be shutting down again. <laughs> I hate, I'm, I I'm just sad. I I hate to say it. I I, I just uh, you know you just can't. The problem is you can't beat the math. You know, you can do everything you want to and be tried to be as good as you can, but, you know, we just don't have good enough control of this virus. It, 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 even if we were doing really well with the MPI, which we're not, non-pharmaceutical intervention, which we're not, uh, we just have so much virus out there, and now it's spreading into the countryside so well that, yeah, there's just uh, – and you can see well, uh, the MSU went into full lock. They locked down. Yeah, one of my side gigs, Fred, is that I do public address announcing for the high school that my kids went to. Ah. And I've, I've, I've already done a soccer game. I'm doing another one at, uh, at five o'clock today, actually. Great. And the, the mask compliance on the part of the athletes, though, is pretty pitiful. Half of them have the mask down below their nose and they're fiddling with them all the time and taking them off all the time. And, you know, they're they're macho young men who think they're indestructible. So I guess that's understandable. Right. But it's it, that's not going to help things. And you're locked away in the press box, though, so you're good up yeah, there. Yeah, I'm all by myself in the press box, right? Yeah, there's nobody else up there, so that's fine. But and that's, that's the, the, the real problem with this is that you can feel great and be young and strong, and you and you'll be you could be asymptomatic, and you'll be <clears> just as uh, you'll be just transmitting just as much as the guy who's you know sick in the hospital, uh, and they just don't know. You know, they, uh, you can't tell that you've got the virus in about you know in about forty percent of the cases. Hmm. And that, that's what really makes this a tough one uh, and why the you know, university is having so much problems right now. MSU just uh, went into full full quarantine, uh, about 40,000 students, I think, uh, 40,000 students. So getting getting back to the idea of uh, the airlines have responded by, you know, eliminating the center seats and making you wear masks and gloves and they take your temperature. Is that enough? Would I keep coming back to my daughters pressuring me to fly to Seattle to see my grandson, and I'm a little nervous about yeah. that. Um, yeah. I, so it, I think what we need to get to for airlines is is three things. So right now, uh, I, I don't, you know, depending on your personal situation, the issue for Seattle is even if you go nonstop, you're talking about being, you know, several hours in a plane. Five. Five hours in a plane. Yep. Um, and the issue actually uh, uh, is there, there are a whole bunch of issues, but there's aerosolization, especially when you're getting on the plane and getting off the plane, uh, because we have to use auxiliary power at that point. We don't have as much air circulation when you're sitting uh, taxiing on the runway until you get in the air. Uh, so you don't get a lot, as much of that fresh uh, air as you want. The so airplanes tend to uh, uh, circulate there every two to three minutes, but it's still a 50-50 mix. So, you know, uh, if you could, if you can attach something right to what they call the gasper, the gasper is the thing that blows on you. You could attach a, 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 a tube right to that, and then have that attached to a mask. Uh, you'd be a lot safer. Uh, and I, you know, that, that, that so there are some interesting opportunities there. Uh, <laughs> testing. If you could test everyone not with a temperature uh, reading, but actually with a true test. And there are there are tests that are coming out that are going to be, you know, quite a bit more accurate, quite a bit faster that you could actually test. 
everyone getting on and off a flight for about two to three dollars. Uh, and I, we'd all take that, right? The problem is that you're still, you, you know, you, you still, you'd have to make sure that people were willing to quarantine for a little while until they took the test, because it takes about four to eight days for the test to come, uh, be really fully, fully, uh, you know, most, most uh, accurate. So you have to be at least a four day period between exposure, chances, and, uh, and getting on the plane. But it's better than nothing. And the last issue, of course, is the vaccine. So if we, if those, if any of those technologies come through, I think those are the best opportunities from non-pharmaceutical intervention uh, to uh, to uh, to a vaccine to um, to a testing. So those are those are the best options we have right now. All right, I'm afraid we're going to have to cut you off because we're out of time. All right. Well, so, why don't we talk next time about the economy? How does that sound? That sounds great. Economy. Sure. Next All right. Monday. Okay. I'm I'm hoping we still have one. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> it's going to be a little bit of a long slog, but I'll see you guys next week. Look forward to it. All right. All right. Thanks very much. Our own special epidemiologist and infectious disease expert, Fred Brown. Thanks for being with us today, Fred. Uh, for right now, this is Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And we'll be right back with another segment of the M Squared Tech Cast. What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. As a Lawrence Technological University graduate, you're not only marketable, you're worth more. Yes, more. According to Payscale.com, when it comes to graduate salaries, LTU is in America's top 100. Be invaluable. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. As a Lawrence Technological University graduate, you're not only marketable, you're worth more. Yes, more. According to Payscale.com, when it comes to graduate salaries, LTU is in America's top 100. Be invaluable. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Lawrence Technological University. Uh, they were spending a lot of their, their budget from these investments from the VCs on marketing and communications. And so so that that was the idea. That was the opportunity. And like... Any good entrepreneur um, slash fool, 
uh, I did it. And uh, here we are 20 years later, still going strong. And I remember you had a little core staff of six in the Penobscot building. And and, uh, I remember way up on the 22nd floor or someplace like that, right? Wow. You have a, a freakishly good memory, Mike. Yeah, we there were there were five of us, all women, I'm proud to say. And uh, we uh, started up in uh, what was then, um, I think it was called Start Detroit. Yeah, uh, incubator, an incubator, accelerator kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. it was an accelerator. And um, yeah, we were all in one office and we had our laptops and that was about it. And then you <laughs> went to Southfield for what, about 10 years or so? We actually went to um, the 1001 Woodward building. Um, that is now a, um, rock, uh, a Gilbert property. And, um, we were there for, I think three years. And then we went to the Southfield town center for almost 11 years. And, uh, and now we're, or had been pre COVID, uh, at beautiful, um, office space in downtown Royal Oak, which suits us perfectly. Yeah, you're about a mile from uh, the podcast Detroit Studios, That's and so correct. It was easy for you just to drive down the street when we had you on the show. So absolutely, Matt. Oh, Keith, uh, give me a little bit about your background um, and your role as president of uh, communications for Airfoil. Um, I know the firm reorganized in 2018, so tell me a little bit about that too. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well. I've I've actually been with the firm for about 14 years now, so I'm I'm a veteran foiler, as we say. But uh, you're right, Matt. We reorganized the agency um, a couple years ago, and um, I took over as president of Airfoil Communications. And this was a really interesting time for our business. Um, we we're going through a lot of change. We were also launching our digital agency at the time, Airfoil Digital. Um, so Lisa was really kind of creating a, um, a real new structure to the organization, having the communications arm as our legacy business and then adding the digital side of our business. Um, but, you know, in terms of my role in particular, I really kind of work on the front lines with our teams to help them develop and, and guide strategy, communication strategy for our clients. So I'm working very closely with our staff on, on the comm side and we're developing strategic programs for, you know, broad range of clients. Um, but I also, you know, I wear many hats. So I also, you know, lead the sales and marketing efforts for the firm. And I oversee a lot of the operational elements of the firm as well in terms of bringing on new talent and developing talent within the agency. And, and as you guys know all too well, you know, things change very quickly in journalism and PR. And that just requires just constant development and evolution of our skills within the agency. And so I spend a fair amount of time working with the team just to, uh, you know, always kind of be on the leading edge of what's happening, happening in our industry. Yeah. That's kind of a technology business. I'm, I pivoted so many times. I feel like a whirling dervish. And uh, so you keep adding and you know, things work for a while, then they don't work and you add something new. And so our new wrinkle, of course, is video. Uh, so let's talk about trends. I don't know who wants to field this, but what are you seeing moving forward in technology, digital trends, that sort of thing? Like sure. Take that so, one, Keith. Yeah, I'll, I'm happy to take it. So, 
Boy, um, that's a great question. And that's all, that's a conversation we're having with a lot of clients right now. I think um, obviously the um, circumstances of the last six months or so have, have um, brought about a lot of change in our industry. So, you know, I think immediately right now, COVID is still having a very big impact on our business from a communication standpoint. And that means everything from um, internal communications, crisis communications work with a lot of our clients. Um, so that, that that's a big piece of it. I would also say um, there's this continued, I think, focus around cybersecurity and big tech and the idea of transparency in terms of, of data in the tech industry. That's That's something that we're we're dealing a lot with. And I think that's something that's going to impact communications for, you know, quite some time into the future. You're seeing a lot of companies kind of have to rethink their communication strategy, um, rethink about how they're being transparent in their business and the way they're sharing information. And, uh, you know, that that's something that we're, we're dealing with on a daily basis with, with clients and, and helping them kind of navigate that situation. Lisa, do you have something you want to add? Well, uh, coincidentally, we did an informal survey of our clients who are mostly communicators and marketers. And there were a couple of things that emerged as uh, very important trends in the near future. And one of those has to do with uh, social issues, um, social justice, uh, racism, and in particular, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, in organizations. And so there is also going to be, obviously, a huge shift away from live events, traditional trade shows and conferences. Uh, as, as Keith knows, and you guys know, you know, for how many years have we, you know, gotten ready for the North American International Auto Show and then CES and all those kinds of things and hardly had a holiday. And um, and that is going to change radically. So, um, and as part of that, as companies shift their event marketing dollars to other areas, primarily digital, their messaging and their narratives need, need to shift as well. So, so that's another trend that we're seeing. Um, digital, digital marketing, obviously is exploding. Um, it's becoming even more so, and social media platforms will continue to be just a mainstay for getting messages out there. Okay, Matt? So the, the firm started out as a technology agency. Is that still your primary focus, working with tech companies? It's a, it's a really big part of our account portfolio. And um, many of these are early stage companies, which frankly, a lot of firms are not equipped to work with. They don't have the experience, patience, and there is risk associated with working with early stage companies. Um, Some of them are wildly successful. Um, It's always a bumpy ride, as you guys know, um, working with entrepreneurs who are creating the next big thing. Um, but I'd say it's, you know, probably a good 30 to 40% of our overall portfolio. If you look at just, you know, um, numbers of clients, um, there are many tangential industries to, uh, traditional technology that have been opportunistic for us as well, including healthcare, 
as well as global mobility. You only have about three and a half months left in the year, but you got anything else up your sleeve that you're going to be doing this year? Well, working closely with our clients, you know, we're starting to get involved with planning for next year. Um, But as part of our 20th anniversary uh, celebration, we did want to um, do something special for a key stakeholder audience of Airfoils as a public relations firm. And that is the news media industry and journalists in particular. Um, And, you know, we've been hearing from journalists lately, this is a really hard time for you guys to do your jobs. Um, And in a sense, journalists are really frontline workers for us in many respects in terms of, you know, protecting our freedom and our democracy. And so we have created a film uh, that is a salute to journalists. It's on the homepage of uh, airfoilgroup.com. And it's intended to just say thank you, you know, for the incredible work that you do and also promotes two nonprofit organizations that are working very hard to help protect journalists and help them do their jobs. So something, uh, it's actually just gone live today. So something for your viewers to check out. Yeah, at least in this country, they're not killing journalists, whereas in a lot of other countries, I'm very much aware that uh, you have a target on your back if you're a journalist. And uh, I've only worked as a war correspondent one time, and uh, that was hairy enough. I can't imagine doing it outside of the United States again. So There's actually a, a really shocking graphic on, I think it's the um, American Journalism Project, Um, The other organization is the Committee to Protect Journalists, but they have a bar graph that shows number of journalists who have been killed. Um, And this year is sadly a record. Um, But we've talked to journalists. These people are getting death threats, you know, news broadcasters, news producers. It's not uncommon. Um, And it's really sad. And we just wanted to say thank you. Okay. Uh, I think we're going to, uh, Keith, any, any final uh, words you want to share here before we sign off for this segment? Yeah, no, I, I just want to kind of echo what Lisa was saying about uh, the commitment of, of journalists in, in this country. Um, you know, this was a video that we were really proud to make and it's a, it's a proud moment in our history. And we're, you know, we're, we're glad that we can shed a little bit of light on, on this issue. Um, you know, there are, there are things that people, don't understand that happened here in the United States. And, and to Lisa's point, journalists do get death threats and tremendous amount of criticism in this day and age. So, um, you know, we're thankful that uh, we've been able to work with so many wonderful journalists through the years. You know, they are really the backbone of, of what we do. So, um, you know, we're, we're proud to issue this tribute to them. All right. Good, good point to uh, right. close on. Yeah, thanks very much, Keith Donovan and Lisa Valley-Smith from Airfoil Group. Uh, Glad to have you with us today, and thanks for being with us once again. Thank you both. Thank you. All right, and we'll be back next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with another edition of the M-Squared TechCast at MITechnews.tv. For right now, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And you've been watching MITechnews.tv. Thanks for listening to M Squared TechCast, a live internet radio show offering the latest news and interviews with the people driving business, technology, and politics in Michigan. Join your hosts, Matt Rausch and Mike Brennan, next Monday at 3 p.m. If you can't listen live, audio podcasts of the show can be found at podcastdetroit.com.